I heard a big crunch, and then the, the scenery disappeared. So I, I couldn't figure out why everything was, was gone all of a sudden. And it took me a while to realize I was looking at the bottom of the lake. Welcome to Flying BC, a podcast about the people, planes, and aviation adventures in British Columbia and Canada, with your host, Warwick Patterson. Welcome back, everybody. I'm hanging out in the hangar today, and I can feel the buzz at the airport, even though it's raining today. But the weather's turning warmer, the days are getting longer, and there's lots of chatter of fly-out destinations, bucket list trips, and summer plans, which is always exciting. It's been a few months since the last show, but I'm happy to say I've got a new season of shows prepped and ready for release, and some great guests coming up. On this episode, I chat with Dominique Prenet, who spent time up north as a bush pilot in the 60s, flying everything from Cessna 180s to single otters and Beach 18s into some very remote places. And then later in his career, he became a vice president at Nordair and Canadian Airlines. He's written a great book called Flying to Extremes, which I really enjoyed. I figure he must have kept a journal at the time because the well-written stories are full of vivid details and names and great photos. There was no GPS or sat phone in those days. If you got lost or in trouble, it was all on you to come up with a solution. And he definitely had some close calls and miraculous adventures. Keep listening to hear some of those. But first, I have a favorite ask. The COPA Regional Director positions are up for nomination again this spring. I was elected as your BC and Yukon Director in a by-election in late 2020. So I've only had just over a year in the role. I feel like I'm just getting warmed up and learning how the organization functions. So I'm throwing my hat in the ring again for a full four-year term. If you're a COPA member in BC and the Yukon, the nomination bios are now out on the COPA website, and voting begins April 4th. I'd love to continue serving you in the community and would really appreciate your vote. As always, if you have any feedback or questions, hit me up at flyingbc.com or at Flying British Columbia on Instagram. It's been great to hear from so many of you over the past couple months. So, strap down the fuel barrels, pump the floats, and let's get right into it with Dominic Prinet. Well, welcome, Dominique Pernay, to the show, to Flying BC. And um, I read your book this summer, and it was a fantastic read. And so I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah. Um, the, the book is full of stories. It's hard to know where to start. But I guess the logical place is to start at the beginning and um, just kind of get your story of coming over from Europe. And um, were, were you... Did you know what to expect when you come over here, or were you just out for an adventure? Uh, I was running away from from my family and and from France and from that uh, environment. Uh, I didn't feel up to it. They're very old families on both sides, going back five hundred years, and very academic and very demanding. And uh, so I just just run away as far as I could. Go, went to the other side of the world. And the reason I chose Canada, because I had read a lot about adventures and stories. And, uh, and the, at the time, the, 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 the Indians and the first settlers in Canada. And I thought it was very exciting. And I loved the, the wilderness of the forest. And also, I had seen in an atlas that the Pacific was, uh, had wonderful sandy beaches 
with palm trees and coconut trees and young women half naked welcoming the uh, arrivals with uh, flowers and guitars. And I thought I'd, I'd join, uh, go to a place where there, there were some of those and uh, wilderness too, and I combined both. When I got here in January, it was snowy, cold, miserable, overcast, and I wonder where, where are the young naked women along the Pacific beach? And so, but I, so I, I went to, to look for a job as a logger, and since the logging camps were closed because of the snow, I had to find another job, and the only thing I could do was was to fly airplanes because I had been a, a commercial pilot and a flying instructor in France. So I got my Canadian equivalents very easily and went knocking on doors in Vancouver Airport and found a job. And that's how I started because I couldn't be a logger. So I became a pilot. Sounds like a good choice. Um, so how did you end up... Uh, what, what what was that first job, and how did you end up up north at that point? The first job was to fly for uh, Norman Gold of what was called originally Powell River Airways, and become became Air West before he eventually merged and became part of DC Airlines. So that was in 1965, and I was up in Powell River flying uh, single engine and light twins. Uh, Piper Apaches and Piper Aztecs, uh, mostly on wheels, occasionally on floats, up and down the coast for about a year, doing skid and charters. And on one flight <clears throat> I had to do to Edmonton, uh, I spent the day in Edmonton uh, waiting for my passengers and having nothing else to do. I talked to the local airline and asked if they had the job because I was ready to move on and try something else. And they said, yeah, sure, come back in two weeks and you get going. So I thought I'd be flying out of Edmonton two weeks later when I arrived. And they gave me a big suitcase. And I said, well, why do I need this? You know, what's the suitcase? What's in it? Well, he says, maps. I said, I, I only need one or two maps. I, I've been flying in BC with one or two or three maps. That's that's all I need. Why, why is suitcase full of maps? Oh, he said, well, where you're going to be flying, you're going to need a whole bunch of maps. <laughs> and and I looked at the maps, and they all maps of, of the whole Arctic, including the Arctic Islands. And so they sent me first to Fort Smith, and I went on and on. It took me a whole day of flying over wilderness and the forest straight up north to Fort Smith. And I didn't realize Canada was so big. And after a month or so of Fort Smith, they said, well, you got to go to Yellowknife, which is even further north, and, and be based there. And that's why I end up in Yellowknife, just, just totally by accident. And that was the beginning of absolutely wonderful adventure. Those were the best years of my life. It was fabulous operation. You had... Uh... A lot of adventures <laughs> up there. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit of the challenges up north. So the first sort of things you faced and you'd been flying along the coast and in places where there's actually populations and lights. And so what were some of the first challenges you came across flying up north that you had to overcome? Well, my main 
challenge was to find out where I was on the flight and which way we were going. Because I was used to follow the shoreline on BC and go from beacon to beacon. So I always knew where I was and the compass was working, so I knew which way I was going. But over there, the compass is increasingly unreliable as you go north, and there are no radio beacons. And you've got flat terrain, that's the, the, the forest first, and then the tundra, with millions, if not billions, of lakes. And there's nothing which looks more like a lake than another lake, <laughs> especially when on the, on the map, there, the, the shape of the lake is not marked properly because I presume that they were drawn from aerial photography at the time when the lakes were probably partially frozen, mm -hmm. sometime in the summer. So they would draw the line of the open water, which had nothing to do with the line of the lake itself. So I couldn't tell one lake from the other from the, from the map. And the map at the time was white and blue, blue being the water, the rivers, the lakes, and the ocean, and white being the land. And there were no contour uh, lines and, and no colors. And I remember a, a map, I think it was in the Mackenzie Valley area, close to the, the, the mouth of the Mackenzie, with a big square on one side, and, he, and it said, warning, mountains have been reported in this area up to 3,000 feet. So <laughs> they may or may not be mountains in that area. <laughs> so I had the hell of a time finding my, my, my way and, and knowing which way to go. That, that was the main thing, is, is roughly go in the right direction and make sure that I, I had a finger on the map all the time because there's no compass. You have to go by the uh, gyro compass and you have to reset it every half hour or 45 minutes along a, a landmark if you can find a, the direction of a river or the edge of the lake. So that's how you navigate with the gyro compass and, uh, and trying to find a big lake that, that you're sure you, you recognize. That, that was what, what bothered me all the time, is knowing which way we were going and where we were. And there's a story in your book where you, you had to go find some prospectors and eventually finally found them, but then forgot to lock the gyro, didn't you? Yes, <laughs> that's that. exactly. The only way you can navigate is, is with the gyro. And before landing, or at landing, when you, the airplane stops, but the engine is still running and the gyro is still run, uh, giving the right direction, you have to block the gyro. So when you start the engine again, you unblock the right gyro and you have a, a direction again. Well, I forgot to, in my excitement, because those people had been forgotten for over a month, I think it had been six weeks or two months, that they'd been forgotten in the bush, or in the tundra, rather. And they had arrived at the end of the summer, so they, had, they were not prepared for winter. And usually in winter, the, the prospectors erect a, a huge pole with a gigantic red flag so that pilots can find them. 
but it was in the summer, so they had a little white tent and summer clothes and only enough food uh, to live until the end of the summer. And we couldn't pick them up during break, during freeze up. And at, uh, when it was hard enough to land, then we looked and looked and looked for days and couldn't find them. I, I found them totally by accident. And uh, when I landed, the, the, the guys were, all, they were still alive and, and waving and jumping up and down. So I, in my enthusiasm, I forgot to lock the gyro. So when we took off again after half an hour, it was already getting dark. It was, I think, in, in October sometime. It was getting dark and overcast, very low clouds. I, I realized I, I didn't know which way we were going, and I didn't know where we were. I found them totally by accident. I, I, I didn't know within 20 or 30 miles where we were on the map, and I didn't know where to go, which way to go. So as soon as I could, I, I landed, and I landed at the south end of a what was was a big lake which was still open. So I didn't know we didn't go through the ice, but I recognized the lake and reset the gyro and was able to go back home with my with my passengers. So they were happy happy to have been been found. But that's what happens. Some people you forget altogether. And, and some people you, you find, but when you find them, it's too late. Yeah, it's amazing. So More it's, people aren't don't get lost or forgotten about up there. Yes. <laughs> at, least, exactly. at least now everybody has satellite and GPS and yeah. doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, then, yeah. yeah. Now the, the issue of, of location and direction have disappeared now with the GPS and the chart plotter. Yeah. Uh, anybody can, can fly. <laughs> at the time, it was pretty hard. Yeah. And that was the late 60s, wasn't it? when you were there late 60s yeah. yes yes yeah. yeah and i was i was doing some research on you and i think you've written a book about navigating by sextant haven't you so yes. that's that's something that's always <clears throat> i i know the general concept but i don't understand what what the process is of using those can you explain that well you you uh, in the north you use it's not the full navigation by sextant you don't determine at least in these small airplanes you don't determine your position with the with the section. You determine your direction. So knowing very roughly where you are within a radius of maybe 50 nautical miles or so, then you can do calculations to find out from the almanac and the site reduction tables <clears throat> where the sun is or where the moon. Well, not so much the moon. That's too complicated. But when the where the planet is, and I use the sun or planets. And so you take a site with uh, a little uh, uh, gadget on the airplane, and uh, it's called the astro compass, and you take a site on the planet or on the sun, if you can see the sun, and you determine your direction after some calculation with the agenda and the site reduction table. So that gives you a direction. Well, then you can reset your gyro and keep on going for a, a while. Gotcha. Cool. And what were some of the other challenges to flying up north then? It's, um, you tell some stories of some of these runways that are one way in, one way out, and also um, even like popping through the ice with a 185. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you tell me that story? Yeah. Uh, 
in and out of, of hills, yes, I, I did in particular one <coughs> landing with the beach 18 up a hill and and that was I, I thought that was scary because it's it's up a very steep hill in a fairly narrow valley. So you've got one chance at making it. And and because you're looking straight at the mountain when you come in, you don't know where the horizon is. So you don't know if you're coming down down towards the the threshold or going up, and uh, and then you have to come in just at the right angle with a lot of power, and then you turn up about 45 degrees up the hill and land, and then apply full power to go up right to the top of the hill, because if you stop halfway up, you can't get out. So you've got to go all the way up and, and turn around, turn the airplane 90 degrees so it doesn't roll back. <clears throat> and when the pa passengers are back, <clears throat> then you have to uh, apply full power and go down the hill. And the runway is not long enough to take off. So you go down the hill, uh, and when you get to the bottom, it's still not flying. So you go over the edge, down into the valley, pick up more speed, and eventually go up. And it's pretty scary, at least for the passengers. Yeah. Uh, and on another occasion, um, what you referred to is <clears throat> is uh, a, a day when I was I think it was in in November somewhere. I went to a a camp which was supposed to be occupied by <clears throat> a guardian for the winter, a dwelling or a, a prospector's camp, and I brought him a whole bunch of fuel barrels that he apparently had requested, and came in and landed uh, with a Cessna one eighty on skis and uh, and as soon as we stopped in front of, of uh, the camp I heard a big crunch and then the, the scenery disappeared so I, I couldn't figure out why everything was was gone all of a sudden and it took me a while to realize I was looking at the bottom of the lake it was all gray and little ripples on the on the bottom I was looking down at 45 degrees through the windshield right into <laughs> the lake so we got out and uh, my wife and I very quickly because of well, the airplane was going down at first got in the water and out and and rushed to the camp and I thought there was somebody in there but it had been abandoned the door was locked so we took a, a long time to and it was 30 below uh, Celsius and Fahrenheit, about the same, 30 below. So immediately our our clothes were totally frozen on the outside. We were surrounded by a shield of, of ice. And and my wife, after two or three minutes, stopped. I told her to walk around the, the hut to keep warming, to keep warm. And, and after a while, she was just drained and exhausted. And she said, look, I can't. I'm going to stop. And she started sailing down on the snow. And I finally managed to open the, the shack and and couldn't couldn't find matches. I turned everything upside down. It was the cook cooked house and I couldn't find matches. So I went to the other two shacks, tore the locks apart and got in there and they were empty. So I came back to my wife. We went inside and said, look, that, that, that's it. So I had to close the door so that the wolves don't eat us, but that, that's it. And I went around the shack one last time and found a booklet of paper matches. 
And with that, I rushed out to the last shack when I had found a, a stove and tore off all the geological uh, maps and the map uh, and the pictures of naked girls from the walls, put everything in the stove. By then I was so cold, I couldn't think properly. I was all curled up and my fingers were no longer functioning. So I had a hell of a time trying to remove it. I couldn't remove a single match from the little matchbox. So the whole lot came off and that didn't matter. I didn't have time. So I just scratched the thing and the whole lot uh, lit up. I threw it in the stove and uh, and we got a fire going and there was a pile of wood outside so that uh, we were fine. So we moved into that shack and, 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 and finally broke the ice around our clothes and we stood naked by the stove and waited for the clothes to dry, to dry and then we were okay. And the next day I heard a little tinkling in the distance. And I looked around and said, maybe I'm hearing voices. So I looked out and there was a First Nation guy coming along the shoreline very carefully with the dog team. So he came over and looked at the airplane with its tail sticking out from the ice and said, hey, the ice is not too thick. I said, yeah, I noticed. And then he, and we offered him a cup of tea. We had found some tea in the cook, cook house. And uh, he looked around and mentioned that there were traces of, of a big wolf around our little shack. And so obviously he had been visited by, and he said, that's, that's a big wolf. Um, and then before going back, he said, the ice is too thin. I can't take you on the sleigh uh, to my village, which is, which is a few hours away from here. But uh, I'll come back in a day or two, pick you up and get you out of here when the ice is thick enough. So and before he left, he gave us a chunk of uh, frozen caribou meat that he had in his uh, sleigh. And then he disappeared. And a day or two later, a helicopter came over. And uh, well, first, a a twin-engine airplane from the company came over a beach 18 and circled around and I, I told I wrote a message on the snow saying the ice is one inch uh, we need sleeping bags mm -hmm. uh, and a little paper dropped down down from the airplane and I read it sorry no sleeping bag but we'll come back and and drop you off some something later on or in a, in a few days and then the day after the indian fellow the first nation fellow came back and he said well maybe maybe it's thick enough if we stay along the edges to to go back to my village and at the same time a helicopter came back uh, and and a bunch of guys came off there some mechanics with power saw and they cut the ice around the airplane and the helicopter hovered over the top and then lifted the airplane off the ice, uh, set it on the ice. The mechanics jumped on it and removed all the cowlings and the uh, plugs uh, on the engine to make sure that the engine and the airplane wouldn't freeze. And so it could drain before freezing. And then when that was done, 
the helicopter took it to the local village at the east end of Great Slave Lake and, uh, and came back to pick us up and flew us back to town. And two days later, the two mechanics had drained the airplane and, and, uh, and then threw it back, <laughs> wow. threw it back uh, to Yellowknife. And they had, they, they were lucky because they, the, the lake, Great Slave Lake was, was wide open except for the edges. And they thought that the airplane would be light after most of the gear had been removed and they had drained it. But it turned out the airplane was still full of water in the wings. Oh, wow. And I think it's part of the tail, which had frozen. And so they were a lot heavier than they thought they were. So they took off towards the open water, thinking there was no problem. And they went on and on and couldn't get off the ice. And as they were getting closer to the edge, the ice was getting thinner and thinner. And they said that they end up uh, skiing over water. They were still not <laughs> off, off the ground yet. Wow. And, and eventually they got off. <laughs> Solid wings, back with, yeah. Uh, yeah. with with all this ice and the wings. Yeah. Wow! Yeah, it was. Uh, you had to make do. You had to figure things out. Yeah, yeah. that's what is interesting. You know, it, every flight is different, mm -hmm. and you need some imagination to get out of embarrassing situations sometimes. Absolutely. And you mentioned that uh, the First Nations man on this the the sled and. The flying is interesting in your book, but also all the characters. You paint a good picture of all these characters you meet, um, whether it's in Yellowknife or up in these Hudson's Bay outposts. And that, that must have been, that's probably what you remember the most, isn't it? It's what struck struck me most. It's the, the people living in the North, uh, mostly the First Nations and the, the Inuit people. Uh, they're absolutely amazing because they've been around for, for five or 10,000 years and they're totally adapted to the environment and they know how to survive in that environment, summer and winter, and they know how to preserve the environment so they don't run out of caribou or, or fish. And they're very careful with the environment. And I think we, we need to learn a lot from them, but the, their resilience and their philosophy are remarkable because those are very quiet and peaceful and mature uh, and sound and healthy people who reason properly. And I've never seen them get, get mad at each other or, or mad at anything. Sometimes they shout at their dogs, but that, that's all. The, the kids themselves are very quiet. They play quietly on furs and caribou hides, for instance, in, in camps. And what, what amazed me is that the children are community children and, and their parents never know in whose tent the kids are during the summer because they can spend a night in one tent or another night. They're, they're all there together and, and all the, the families live together and, and, and hunt and, and play together. And the kids are brought up by the community. It doesn't matter where they get their food from or where they get their attention from. And I, I thought it was quite, this communal life was, was quite quite interesting. That's great. And, uh, and the people, their, their knowledge uh, and their dedication is, is amazing. And uh, they, they have no sense of time, obviously. I mean, they, 
they, and that what surprised me, especially during the summer when there is 24 hour daylight, they'll do anything anytime. And you, you ask an Inuit fellow, for instance, to come and help you at, at, at two o'clock in the afternoon. Well, at two o'clock in the afternoon, he's, he's sleeping or he's fishing or hunting or repairing his, his kidoo or feeding his dogs. He's got other things to do, so he doesn't show up. But at, at two o'clock in the morning, in the middle of the night, then he'll show up because now is the time and he's willing anybody. So it can be any time of the day or the night. They they live according to to their needs of the moment and their availability and what needs to be done. And that's that's very healthy. It's a lot less attention than going by the clock and saying, look, it's seven o'clock so I have to eat whether I'm hungry or not or it's eight o'clock and I've got to go to work whether I want to work or not <laughs> yeah. that's not the way they live they, they live in the moment yeah they live in the in the moment and yeah. depending on what needs to be done and they work just as much in this in the wind and the at least during the summer in the during the night or big, during the night doesn't matter they, you know, they will come to work at two o'clock if the morning in, in the morning if needed <laughs> Have you um, had the chance to go back up there in more recent years to visit some of these places again? Yes, I was there about ten years ago uh, on a on a cruise on a, a cruise on a small boat out of Copper Mine, hmm. uh, and and I, I shouldn't have gone back because in the late sixties those communities were very small. You're talking a Copper Mine of two or three hundred people, Holman uh, Island, Cambridge Bay very small community and everybody knew each other and, and it was it was fairly clean and there were no real problem problem yet and now I go back and and the community is very big there are lots of buildings and administration and, and schools and uh, and there are trucks and caterpillars everywhere and garbage all over the place and telephone poles and, and people are wandering around and not knowing what to do. So uh, I thought it was pretty depressing. Mm. But what I like is to see that the monument to the bush pilots in Yellowknife was still there. So I <laughs> went to pay my respect to the <laughs> bush pilot. It was erected when I was there around 67 or 19 around there sometime it's a monument of the bush pilot and at least we have been recognized <laughs> yeah yeah you helped build the country really yes exactly uh opening it up and flying trappers and prospectors and and pregnant women i could never figure out why women have their babies that, in January, in the middle of the night, in the blizzard, why don't they wait until June or July? Uh, and uh, or searching for people who got lost with their skidoos or flying uh, people in the oil and gas exploration uh, companies up in the Arctic Islands in, in, in February of all times at 50 below in the dark. So it was all very challenging. And I, I really had the impression that I was participating in the opening of the North and helping people in the communities. That, 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 was, that was why it was so thrilling. I was part of the North and people depended on me. When I landed in a small community, they all rushed to, to meet the airplane and see who was coming and 
what I had brought from from town. Uh, it was very rewarding. And uh, I guess you you got that adventure you were looking for in all those books and the atlas and um, the the thing the stories you well, read. I, you were making your own stories. Uh, I yeah I. I, I got some of that. I, I didn't get the the young girls uh, with the uh, flowers around their necks <laughs> and the guitars, but I got everything else, yeah. the wilderness, and, and even more than I had expected. Nice. Um, you kind of got to fly all the the classic great bush planes in your time. You'd play yes. 180s, beavers, otters, beach 18. Beach 18. Yeah. yeah. What, what was your yeah. favorite? The favorite is the otter, the single otter. The, the twin otters uh, didn't exist at, at the time. So the single otter. Uh, I did a lot of flying up in the, along the Arctic coast and up the Arctic islands, uh, summer and winter, including a, an atrocious flight to 80 degrees north uh, in February, minus 50. The, everything was frozen solid. The aircraft was very hard to drive because... Everything was so tight. The cables were tight. The, on takeoff from one of the Arctic islands uh, in the dark, I had the propeller stuck in fully fine pitch because the oil was frozen inside. I couldn't go back to a more regular pitch. Uh, I had one wheel, uh, one ski up on one side and down on the other. Um, and, and my passengers sent me a bottle of whiskey up front one day and I thought they were feeling sorry for me because I was I was totally terrified. That was it took a week of flying up there in, in the dark under the stars. It was just awful. And uh, I thought they felt sorry for me. I, I needed to be cheered up with some whiskey. So they sent me a bottle of whiskey. It turned out that they just wanted to show me that it was rather cool inside the airplane because the whiskey was frozen solid <laughs> in the bottle inside the cabin. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, and that was with an order, and uh, it, and uh, on another and but, but and we survived and landed in awful terrain, rough, on on rocky ridges up in the Arctic in the, in the dark and on rough ice, and it was, it was just awful. The, the airplane uh, took us and they never faulted. Uh, in uh, including one night during which uh, the the engine ran for 11 hours i added uh, fuel uh, without stopping the engine from 45 gallon drums with a hand pump in the dark and in the cold and added oil to it but it ran for 11 i couldn't stop it because the 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 battery would be frozen wow so if you stop it you can't get it started Amazing. So uh, that was that was one experience. Another experience was with the with the auto. Also, we were flying along the coast during the summer, and we picked up ice in the clouds. I was flying through the clouds for three or four hours. We picked up ice and went all the way to the ground on the tuna. I, I knew that the the bad weather was all the way down to the ground because that's where I come from. There was no visibility at all. And we did come down with a fully iced airplane with full power and takeoff flaps uh, and still going down. And we hit the ground at, at virtually cruising speed because it, it's, there was no visibility with, with the solder. And we, we hit the ground on the lake just totally by accident. Oh. 
So the landing wasn't wasn't very brilliant, but at least we were on water. And when I chopped off the engine, the airplane started singing because it was so loaded with ice. So I had to run on the water to to gain to retain enough speed to keep on the water. And I couldn't see anything because the the windshield was all iced up and there was fog. It was you couldn't see fifty meters around. And so I asked the passenger on the right to open his window and see if he could see the shore so we could park the airplane somewhere and look for a little beach. And all of a sudden he told me, oh, here's a little beach. So I turned the airplane 90 degrees to the right and rammed it uh, on the beach. And after a while he was looking outside and uh, and and I asked him, well, what, what do you look? I thought he was looking at caribous or a moose or something like that. Oh, he said, I said, what, what are you looking at? So I'm looking at the tents. So I, I looked outside and, and sure enough, there were two tents. Uh, so then a, a, a passenger came up, a, a lady, and he and she said, uh, have we arrived at the lodge? We were going to Arctic Circle Lodge on Great Bear Lake, following the shoreline uh, or in that area. And, um, and I said, no, ma'am. we." We still have an hour, an hour and a half to go, but the weather was so bad, I thought we would stop for, for a cup of coffee. And she said, oh, good, because I was hoping to stretch my legs. And so I, I had to let down the passengers through the cockpit because the back of the airplane was, was on the water and it was so slippery, they couldn't walk on the, on the, on the pontoons. And I told the woman, stretch your leg but don't go too far because it's the fog is so thick that even the seagulls are walking <laughs> and then eventually i got all my passengers out and we went to the tent and we spent something like 12 or 14 hours in the in one of the two tents which was a cookhouse it, it was there was a a phd student his uh, thesis supervisor uh, looking at geology and they, and they cook in the cook cookhouse. Um, so we spent, we drank all their coffee and ate all their biscuits and whatever they had and, and, and bread and, and, and jam. And I felt embarrassed, but I told the, I told the three men that don't worry, I'll come back in a few days and bring you some, some replacement supplies. And I think they even drank, no, there was no, there was no, no alcohol. But, and after 12 or 14 hours, the weather cleared up a little bit. It was, the ceiling was about 50 meters. It was clear as a bell underneath it. You could see for miles and miles, right to the right, absolutely clear. But it was about 50 meters above the ground. That's okay because the tundra is totally flat. Anyhow, hmm. and by then the snow, the, the ice had melted, so we took off again and arrived at the lodge. And and never told any anybody. They thought it was great, great, great fun, because the flight itself had been very smooth. So they thought, great pilot, a wonderful flight. It was nice to stop on the way and have a cup of coffee because the flight was something like five hours anyhow. So it's nice to stop. It was perfect organization and wonderful, <laughs> wonderful, a tour, a tour wonderful the, trip. Yeah. I remember. Yeah, and, I remember reading that story. I never told anybody about it. Yeah, I remember reading that story and thinking you, you got away with one there. That was. Yeah, yeah, that, that, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that one was pretty close. Yeah, amazing. Um, 
Can you tell me a little bit about ski flying? Because that's something I want to do more of, but it feels like something you have to do to learn. And and there's a lot more to than just the the airplane part of it. There, you got to read the terrain, the ice, the snow. Well, ski flying around an airport, for instance, on flat terrain is is no problem if you know the terrain on which you're landing. If you if you're landing on a field, it's it's even it's easier than on wheels uh, because you don't bounce and it's very smooth and and very pleasant and there's no problem. The problem is when you land in the tundra and especially in winter when it's overcast or the sun is below the horizon. For instance, if you go north of the Arctic Circle, which is where a lot of flights were, then you never see the sun and therefore you never have shadows. So you've got gray terrain and you don't know where the bumps are, you don't know where the rocks are, and it's relatively flat, but you could very well hit a, a rock sticking out or, or coming on their approach and hit the size the side of a, of a small bump or a small hill that, that you, you can't tell. Mm. So you're really, it's, it's a, essentially an IFR approach and your approach, hoping you're not gonna hit anything and and you just hope for the best and it it's, it's very scary unless you're landing on a frozen lake where there's nothing to it but if it's an open ground then that i would it always scared me because if you hit something and tear off the undercarriage you're stuck in, in 40 below and in the dark and nobody will find you because we're gone for most of the time for several days at a time and bumming around all over the place so nobody knows where you are and you you might have to wait a long time before somebody finds you. So that, that that part I didn't like. Right. So how many years in all did you fly up north? I was there for five years, mostly in the wind in the summer, because I was going to 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 college in the meantime in the winter. But I spent a, a year and a half uh, year round in there, including uh, fall, winter, and and spring. And fall and spring are the most challenging times because the ice is sink enough, mm-hmm. sink enough. So. and um and i read that you also you went on later to be uh a vp at nord air and canadian airlines how did you get from flying up north to um working in that industry or did you, was it a continuous string yeah no no it, it was i was i was uh flying out of yellow knife and on the in November one day, I was told that my services were no longer needed because it's usually what happens in the winter. The flying it slows down to a trickle and uh, the pilots who are needed to fly around the clock every day of the week, day and night, since there is no night in the summer, uh, are not needed in the... So I, I told my passenger, well, uh, I was coming back from someplace with the beaver on skis i saw my passenger well that's that's my last uh, flight for the year i was with you I, I didn't know that before and i told him well that's that's the answer i'm happy to have flown with you and i'm going to find another job and the guy said well since it was a friday evening why don't you come and cheer up and celebrate there's an office party uh where i work and uh, just just join us. We'll get free booze in there <laughs> and some sandwiches. 
So I said, yeah, that's a good, I have got nothing else to do. So I went up and joined the party and I met Pat Carney, who eventually became minister of uh, economic affairs, I think, and, and eventually a senator. And she had a consulting firm there. And she would ask me, well, uh, who are you and what do you do? I said, well, I, I'm a Bush pilot, but I, uh, I don't have a job as a Bush pilot as of half an hour ago. So I, I'm really nothing. And he said, well, we don't need a Bush pilot, but what we need is a, an economist with an engineering background to do some studies. And I don't know where to find them. Well, so I'm that too. <laughs> so I said, well, could you come back tomorrow morning and start? I said, yes. And I went and I spent two years doing the part of the social economic impact study on the McKenzie Valley pipeline. And when she ran out of the study had been finished, then I didn't know what to do. So I wrote to Nordair and asked them if they needed anybody to do anything, including flying airplanes or whatever. And they said, yeah, sure, come over. So I moved to, to Montreal with my new wife and moved to Nordair and after a while became vice president. And then Nordair was taken over by Canadian Airlines and the boss man uh, came over and asked me if I wanted to be vice president at Canadian Airlines in Vancouver. I said, sure. So I ended up back in Vancouver at Canadian Airlines and that's... That's how I flew, went from flying airplanes to pushing paper on the desk. And do you still fly now? Do you still fly? No, no, no I, I flew, I went back to flying 10, 12 years ago when I was 70, flying helicopters. And that was a passion. I absolutely love it. But I decided, I, I discovered that well, I thought I was, my brain was still working and I was still physically fit and could run around the block and, and, and do some exercise. But it turned out I didn't, no longer had the reflexes to fly helicopters and didn't have the brain that was, was scary to, to understand all the conversation and fully understand the, the phys physical uh, situation, the other traffic and and didn't have the proper reflexes. And I thought it was getting too dangerous, so I stopped. But I still built 100 hours of helicopter bombing around, and that was a wonderful time. But I, it was too risky. You can't fly helicopters at 70. You've got to be uh, young to do it. And uh, the other students who were training with me were 18 or 20 years old, boys and girls, and they had absolutely no problem. And I, I, I couldn't do what they were doing. And they were doing it naturally. And for me, it was a struggle and uh, very challenging. So that the, the brain, the brain no longer works. It, 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 it sounds okay, maybe, but it doesn't function properly. So that I'm sure old people should, should stay out of flying helicopters because they're very unstable and and very tricky to fly. I'm sure it uh, kept your brain active, though, and kept you uh, engaged. <laughs> yeah. yes, yes, yes. Awesome. Um, well, I'm sure things have changed up north the, since you were flying up there, but uh, what advice would you give young pilots or would-be pilots who are looking at that as something they want to go do as part of their aviation career? Well, if you could join 
some some bush flying operators, especially up north. It's beautiful country. The 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 people in the north form a very tight community. They help each other because they're very dependent on each other for food and for for shelter. And uh, the environment is spectacular. The flights are fascinating because every flight is different, and you you're on your own. You decide to fly or not to fly, or to stop along the way, or to land on a sandbar or on a river or on a lake or across the tundra. You take your own risk. You make your own decision, and it's it's very stressful, but it's very rewarding. So. Build up ours as a flight instructor and then as a bush pilot on on floats and, and wheels and skis in in one of the provinces and try to get a job out of Yellowknife if you can or out of Resolute Bay or Cambridge Bay because it's it's absolutely fascinating, very rewarding. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you were able to put your stories into the book and tell your stories and actually your photography is great too so you had the presence of mind to document it with your camera too yes and unfortunately uh, i don't have that many pictures of the winter time because it's too cold the camera freezes and it's too dark and it's just very difficult to take pictures it's much easier now with electronic systems but uh, at the time with film uh, which snaps and the cold and, and lenses that fog up. It's, uh, it was very challenging, but I still got some some pictures of the of the of the Arctic uh, during the dark. But the, those are dark pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's hard enough at the best of times. So awesome. So where can people find your book um, if they want to get a copy? Well, you can find it. You can order it from any bookstore. Um, they probably don't have it in stock, but that's okay. You can uh, order it from directly from the publisher in British Columbia in Vancouver. It's Hancock House. They've published a lot of books of a similar type on the north. Uh, you can buy it from a aviation online publisher called The Aviator's Bookshelf, also in BC. And that's what they do, sell aviation uh, books uh, uh, through the web and uh, also through if you're in the north you can buy the books from the bookseller in Yellowknife they've already sold over 300 copies of it in, in Yellowknife alone wow. and uh, and of course through Amazon Amazon tends to be more expensive but if you look it uh, where to if you click on the right place on Amazon and you get it. It's only $25, which is very cheap on glossy paper with 180 color pictures. So yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's fantastic. Very good deal. Yeah, I think I got mine from the Aviator's Bookshelf. That's uh, Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, they, they come out with, well, they carry new new books almost every month. So that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. That's a good source. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, it's great to catch up with you and chat with you. And uh, thanks, well, thanks for sharing. Thank you very much for having me. It was quite enjoyable. Yeah, <laughs> great. Thank you. A big thanks to Dominic for sharing his stories, both on this show and in his book. I highly recommend picking up a copy. And of course, thanks to you, the listener, for being here. I'd love to hear your feedback. 
please leave Flying BC a review on iTunes or Spotify, or get in touch with me directly at podcast at flyingbc.com. And now, you have control.